Very good evening to you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm uh, just very thankful to be among you tonight to talk, uh, firstly, well, to get to spend time with you, but also to think about very important and lofty things. The most important thing we can think about is God and the calling He has on our lives. And I know for many of you, you've uh, probably had a very long day at this point. Some of you looking at a screen for many hours, others with your uh, face in a book for many hours, thinking and uh, we're going to spend just a few more minutes tonight uh, thinking, which I hope is interesting to you, but I do realize, again, that you've uh, already had uh, much of this today. So hopefully, again, we can um, move the ball down the field, so to speak, and really be encouraged in our faith as I'm encouraged to be with you. So if you want to open your Bible or flip on your phone to Acts chapter 17, I thought I'd talk about a very famous, um, one of my favorite scenes in the, uh, the Bible, and I'll read from Acts 17 and verse 16, and kind of read, uh, I'll read till about verse 31. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the, the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I'll stop there. And you say, why is this such, I think, a timely passage for us? I think uh, many truths that help encourage my faith. First to notice that the message of Jesus comes into a world that's a very complicated world with a lot of other religions that now we look around and you see this big world out there and you say, well, there's all, you know, there's all kinds of views out there and people mix and match the views and we know the Eastern religions and the humanistic religions and you know, where does it all fit together? Is this new? And actually, so the world's always been that way. 
uh, that the gospel enters into a, a time and a place uh, that is very rich with a lot of competing ideas. And Paul is right in the center of it here in Athens in the place of the Areopagus. You notice the line where this is the place where people debated ideas. And that's a very fresh thing that we need to recapture, uh, the exchange of ideas in the marketplace. And I think we Christians have always, uh, this is the way we want our, our faith to spread, not through politics and not uh, certainly through force, but rather through uh, preaching the message, right? And preaching, can you think of that, what I'm doing now, but really telling people with words and living out what it means to be a Christian and to see that's always been the means from the very start up until now. And what I want us to think about tonight is how Paul here functions as a translator. I remember uh, there, there was a, a man I studied under by the name of Alistair McGrath. He's a well-known uh, apologist, and, and I remember him starting a lecture. He says, the best apologetic you can offer is just explaining what Christianity is. And what he meant by that is we've so lost our Christian ethos in the West, right? So it wasn't that long ago, say a couple decades, where if I or any preacher would say, Adam, say almost everyone in the audience would say we know exactly who he's talking about. He's talking about the, the first person ever, you know, the first man in the Bible. Why? Because everybody would have had the Bible in school. You get the idea. Just commonplace to know about Jesus and about Adam. Now you mention Adam, say, who's he talking about? Is that his brother or something? So the best way uh, we want to be able to, a lot of times we think people be mad at us if we share our faith or if we talk about Jesus. And the fact of the matter is, is most of the time they, they really don't know. They've got a a bad version of Christianity that we're against things or angry at people instead of what we're for and that is the grace of God uh, that comes in Jesus that's for all people in all, all times and so notice what Paul does here a few things to translate Jesus across to this very uh, richly complex audience and one of the things he does is he picks up on an artifact there in their midst doesn't he he says you've got a marking here to the unknown God and he says, you don't know him, but I do. He's this Jesus. And you see what he does. He takes a familiar object, all of them. They're sitting around the Areopagus all the time. Every single day they come, they're debating ideas. Of course we know, the, uh, you know that, that marker. He's saying, take something you're familiar with and then connects the dots to Jesus. Notice what else he does kind of towards the end of our passage and say verse 28, that he quotes secular poets. This is such an important point for me that uh, goes on to a much bigger thing. I don't know how I'm going to keep this to 20 minutes. I never, or 15. They said the longest Caleb ever talks is 20 in here. I said, my goodness, I've never talked shorter than about 30. Uh, but anyway, I'm going to try to do that. Uh, but Paul quotes a man named Epimenides and another man named Aratus. They're not Christians. But he finds something truthful that they've said and connects the dots to the person of Jesus. And I think we should be more confident in the fact that all truth is God's truth. So you have somebody who's not a Christian, but they're saying something. You're like, look, this is a, um, you know, a statement that's been made, which a lot of us feel. Can I show you how that best fits with a belief in Jesus? So Paul acts as a translator, and that's what I think um, we're going to be called to do in our times and our places, to observe your uh, the world in which we live, the secular world, see what people are thinking and feeling, the objects they're familiar with, and then uh, show them how Jesus most adequately uh, fits those longings and satisfies um, really uh, what it means to flourish and, and to really thrive as a person. Notice I'll make as, as quick as I can kind of four strokes here. The arguments that Paul makes are timeless. Four timeless arguments in this little sermon at the Areopagus. 
in his translation, first he picks up on the fact in verse 22 that they are very religious. Uh, one of the great myths, I think, is that the uh, world is becoming more atheistic. Uh, maybe slightly. Um, there's a good argument to be had that atheism really peaked in the Bolshevik uh, revolution, say early 20th century with communism, which was an openly, you know, God has no place here. But actually, uh, people have all kinds of spiritual, spiritual beliefs now. I don't know if you do it's not that Christianity may be coming, organized Christianity may be diminishing, but spirituality and belief in the supernatural is not. You say, if anything, that might be coming back up a bit. It's just what Paul wants to do here is show that these religious longings, be they, say, for the afterlife or for ultimate meaning in the world, he says, you know, um, I've got a really good answer for that. It's this one that God raised from the dead. And so I think there is here, again, not whatever you've been hearing about um, the loss of, of, of the Christian faith. Maybe so, but let's not confuse that with a loss uh, of spirituality. That is not true, but rather that there are deep longings in the human hearts that people are scrambling all over the place um, to, to find. I'll give you one example that I think uh, shows this with, say, something like... Um, the QAnon movement, if you know this, a very radical kind of uh, conspiratorial group, that if you listen to what they say, you know, very enmeshed in kind of conspiracy theories, they're kind of an apocalyptic group. Um, even though it's not a Christian group, the kinds of things they say, it's as if the end times are coming and that there's a great scheme and that there's all these moving parts. And I just say there's something almost spiritual about uh, this fringe movement. Is that a way you say, well, you meet somebody into that and you say, well, do you make a connection? to say, well, that's not the true God, but rather I know who he is, that there are spiritual longings all over the place. What we want to do is say, what is the worthiness of the object of your worship, um, you know, and is it not the one who came to live among us in his race? So what does Paul say? Everybody has all these weird religions. Let me show you why, why this one's different. Uh, because God sent forth his son in time and space and raised him from the dead and a life surrendered to him is where real flourishing is, not in these kind of fringe movements or a hodgepodge of things that we can't pin down. So see if that's true. Uh, again, those who wouldn't know Jesus but would be religious. Second argument he makes, I, again, very timely, but on, on origins. He says, my God made everything. No matter how you, you can't go very long in the world till you answer this question, and that is that how did everything get here? Uh, you really only have three options. Uh, there was the classic view that matter itself is eternal. Well, uh, you look outside, there's trees and rocks. Um, it must always, from eternity past, have been here. The problem with that is scientifically, they said this is untenable because we live in an expanding universe and now the scientists say, well, actually there is a point of origin. So you have an instance there of science, scientific developments, moving people back in the direction of what the Bible's always said. So matter is not eternal, we know that. You can say, um, really in the beginning there must have been some stuff or something came from nothing, which I think is where most of the scientific community is now, if you have to pin them down. I smiled, you know, Francis Crick, who won a Nobel Prize for discovering uh, the double helix uh, structure of DNA, you know, he, um, his view is what they call directed pansperma, which he believes that a spaceship from a smarter intelligence than humans came by and dropped off little human seeds. And I say, well, this is the great Nobel laureate 
and he's going to accuse us of being unreasonable. He's going to accuse us as relying on faith, and that's his view of the origins of the universe, that there must have been some kind of aliens who dropped little human seeds around. You say, no, no evidence for that is all at all. So, I mean, you have to get into these bizarre theories. Or thirdly, which is the view we hold, that there's an incomprehensibly good and smart being uh, who spoke everything into existence. And so again, you, you know, what the uh, atheistic, you know, your friends that are secular are going to try to do, they're going to bludgeon you over the head with the great scientific, uh, the authority of our day, the great uh, science, right, a real authority in our day. They're going to say science is against your view. And you say, well, something like origins, it seems to me that, that science is pointing us more in the direction of a really intelligent being that spoke things into existence. That's the fine-tuning of the universe and to me makes a lot more sense. And that's what Paul wants them to see is that the God that I believe in is not uh, one who's uh, by chance, but rather he spoke matter. He made the world and everything in it in verse 24. I have a lot more to say about that. I've got a lot of material, but I think that what I would remember go back to translate, we owe ourselves not to be afraid of science, but rather to say, look at what the scientific consensus is, and in many instances, see how it points back to what the Bible's always said. Say the origins of the universe, the ordering of the universe, the language of God, uh, as Francis Collins named his book, right, which is what he named our DNA. You have a lot of instances of this moving back in our direction. We're smart to go to origins. We can't have an infinite regress of causes. We must say, this all came from somewhere. Uh, the best answer uh, and, uh, is that there's a very smart God who spoke everything into existence. Third point uh, Paul makes here is that this God made every person from one person. And I bring this up and I want to be delicate here, um, but with the racial tensions in our country, I want to see if I can explain this well. If you're a naturalist, if you're someone who believes everybody emerged out of the soup and uh, ethics are just uh, in your DNA. They don't come from anywhere, they're just ingrained, because that's all there is, they're just stuff. Then to me it makes perfect sense that I would want to take care of people in my gene pool. It would make perfect sense that I would want to only protect my family, that I wouldn't be concerned about people of other ethnicities or distant lands. I'd say, well, why would it be advantageous for me to be someone, kind to someone outside of my gene pool who lives far away from me, who lives differently from me? Uh, rather, it, it would probably be evolutionarily advantageous for me to be cruel to other people outside of, of my immediate circle, i.e., it seems to present a real case for being discriminatory against other peoples, especially distant peoples who look away from me. Bible says no. We're all one human race, all made in the image of God. If you don't have that, see, and that's where I think you get in a real bind as a secularist, because what you have to say is say, we don't like racism, it's wrong. But in the other sense, you, you say, well, we're all here by chance and we're all just trying to fight for our own uh, progeny. That is what is most interesting to me is that I can propagate my own, my own uh, people group, right, to keep the Shahs going and so forth. So you need something like this, the image of God, at the bedrock of a society that's going to say, no, actually, there's a dignity in all human life, and we're called to love those who are distant from us and those who look different than us and so forth. And again, this, I think, is a real opportunity uh, in these times. So yes, we're against racism, but we have the philosophical underpinning to actually make that case. Naturalism doesn't get, get you there. What it really does is make a very good argument to, to dislike distant peoples, I think. Finally, um, a moral argument that Paul brings up judgment. 
He says, the times of ignorance have been overlooked, but now he commands everyone to repent because he's fixed a day when there's going to be a judge, and who's the judge? Jesus. How do we know that? Because it's the one who's been raised from the dead. Morality. Where do you get right and wrong? Everyone you talk to today, how many times did you think about an ought? That's the wonderful word, right? You ought do this. You should do this. Say, there's an old fallacy called the naturalistic fallacy where you can't get an ought from an is. That if you're a naturalist, that is someone who doesn't believe in, in God and all there is is stuff, you say you can't get from the stuff to the should. Where does the should come from? All you have is stuff. So the arguments that you want to say is that, you know, you only have two options with morality. One is that it's socially constructed or that there's a good God in whom we uh, find is the very anchor for right and wrong. So social construction would go like this. Okay, let's have this side of the room. We're going to gather up. We're going to decide what's right and wrong for us. This side of the room, you gather together. You decide what's right and wrong for you. What right does this group have to tell this group that they're wrong? You have no authority to appeal to. We've gotten together and we've said, we're going to do what we want to do. And you're saying, we got together and we do what we want to do. And you say, well, you take this to the most extreme example, right? Germany in the 1940s, which is exactly at the Nuremberg trials when those high Nazis are being tried. You know what their argument was? We were just doing what we were told to do. We were being good Germans. If you're embracing a naturalistic way of seeing the world, I don't know what other arguments you have to, to appeal to. However, if you're a theist, right, and you say something like this, that there's a judge, there's a righteous judge, that means in him there's a right and a wrong, and that we can point to him and think about him and say that's going to be um, the way that we, again, treat people, the way we talk to people, the places that we go, that we have a firm anchor in our morality. So really what I wanted to say, I hope came across in these 20 minutes, is that as you go back and look at Acts 17, you think about the world in which we live, it's, getting, it's a great time to be a Christian, it really is, because everybody has a lot of questions and it's a very difficult time. But all these arguments here say they're, they're kind of timeless arguments. People are religious everywhere. They're believing in all kinds of crazy stuff. Can we show them that actually there's a firm place to believe? Can we point to the creation itself? Say, where did all this come from? Is it just by chance? And if it's by chance, what does that mean for my life? Or do you say, well, what about all this science that looks like it's fine-tuned, that somebody played with the dials? Thirdly, we do want to love all people. Where does the dignity of people come from? Do we need something like the image of God? Where have I heard that before? Oh, yeah. Can I show you? It's in, it's in the Bible. And lastly, we want right and wrong to be anchored in a, a referent beyond ourselves so we don't fall into the trap of social construction. And I would argue these arguments, way back, complicated world there, translated them in here. And I hope, uh, again, we have a lot of confidence in our faith uh, to do that and to not be ashamed of our gospel, but rather that it is life and that it is hope and it's still as uh, viable as it always has. And it's to us, your generation, you're you know, maybe a generation younger than I am, but you say we have a short time to be the church. Are we going to make the most of the time and to represent our Lord well and to be able to think about these things and uh, persuade people? Again, this has always been done. <laughs>